Our first reading is taken from the book of Samuel, first book of Samuel, uh, at chapter 3, and a reading from one, verses 1 to 10. You can find that in your pew Bibles, page 273. So we read, The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord, where the ark of of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. But he said, I did not call you. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Then the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So so Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, Lord, speak, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. Our reading continues where Susan left off at at verse 11 and continues through to the first verse of chapter 4. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I'll carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons uttered blasphemies against God, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down until the morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid, afraid to tell Eli the vision, but Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son, Samuel answered, Here I am. What was it he said to you? Eli asked. Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, 
and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines at Aphek. It'd be good to have those words open. I'm taking that that was a prayer that we just had. It's lovely to get back to the old... Uh, I, I associate Master Speak with the, the Billy Graham missions in the 80s. I know that's a, a, a theme tune for, for many of us from those times. But uh, I take that as our prayer as we turn to the Bible. Apparently there is an old Chinese curse which goes like this. May you live in interesting times. And you heard me right. To live in interesting times in Chinese culture is thought of as potentially a curse. I wonder if you'd agree that the times we live in are interesting times. Never a dull moment, however much we might be longing for one occasionally. It seems that we launched from one unexpected crisis to another. And uh, people were, were glued to their phones yesterday, I think, a lot of people following the news from Russia, what was going on there. I've lost count of the times BBC coverage resorts to the word unprecedented in its coverage of political events, national events, international events, the economy, and so on. And so often it appears to us, as we're following, that the the news is bad, doesn't it? Woody Allen put it in his own wonderful way. More than any other time in history, mankind faces a crossroads. One path leads to despair and utter hopelessness. The other, to total extinction. Let's pray we have the wisdom to choose correctly, he said. I think it's really helpful that we have a summer Thanksgiving today before us. It forces us amidst the uncertainties and the fear to lift our eyes up to God and to thank him, however hard that sometimes appears on the face value of of circumstances we've got. Nice to have that introduction from Miles at the start of the service, encouraging us to think of things to thank God for. I remember my wife, Susu, telling me about a period, uh, this is a long time back, just in case it it sounds alarming, when she was, just before we were were married, when she was, frankly, depressed at rock bottom, and a wise Christian friend urged her, as a spiritual discipline, to find something, even if it was just one thing, something, a single thing, every single day, which she could take pleasure in and rejoice about, and to thank God for it. She had a little pot, a ramekin or something, and she would symbolically put a penny in the pot as she thanked God for that thing, just because a a physical act was helpful to her in uh, just making sure that she'd said thank you and uh, called it to mind. Whatever it might be, a sunset, a kind word from a friend, a phone call, whatever. That is a a helpful discipline in difficult days, it seems to me. It pushes us to lift our eyes, as I said, to remember God. That he is there and that he is not absent. In fact, he's very much present, even in the midst of tricky times for us. And when we can't necessarily easily spot his working at the moment. 
Now, it's striking to me also that we're considering the book of 1 Samuel when we live ourselves in interesting times. It had been many years since God's people had entered the land as we get to this point in the story of uh, Israel. There had been a sort of downward spiral, actually, for decades, where the temperature spiritually and politically and economically had slumped. They'd had one crisis after another for God's Old Testament people for many years. And that question, where's God in the midst of all this, must have been on their minds, but can his people still find things to rejoice in, to celebrate at their equivalent of a summer Thanksgiving? That's a good question to ask. And I want to highlight two from that reading in 1 Samuel 3. Here's the first. God is kind enough to speak. God's kind enough to speak to them in that situation. Let me read from uh, chapter 3, verse 1, to start with. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. As I mentioned, um, this is a time where in Israel, where God's people were in a mess, frankly. One of the Bible's writers puts it like this. In Israel, there was no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So there was no one in charge, and therefore everyone took charge and made up the rules for themselves. God had spoken in the past through Moses, uh, like no other nation on the face of the earth. They knew God's will, but they had actually turned their backs on God's word. And any fresh communication from God had all but stopped. One of the prophets later on, Amos, would warn them of a terrible judgment to come when there would be a famine in the land, not a food shortage, but a famine, he said, of hearing the word of the Lord. Now, it wasn't far off that in the period of Judges. Not yet quite a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. But, verse 1, in those days the word of the Lord was rare. So God's people were on meager rations, a subsistence diet, of the most important sustenance there is, the word of God. And the point is this, God doesn't have to communicate with us. If we refuse to listen to what he has already said, one of the things which sometimes happens is that God will speak less to us, and he's free to do that. If he makes himself known to us at all, it's because he is kind enough to speak to us. So we might respond in in very sort of pragmatic 21st century way. We're can-do mentality people. We might respond if we were living back then. Oh, well, well, the Lord is rare. Let's just make sure we send a few more people to theological college or to Cornhill and a training scheme. Or why don't we open up a Prophet's Tech Skills online training scheme to get the word more effectively out and so on. We'd have all sorts of ideas maybe. But listen, if the word of God was rare, it means the word from God was rare. If a word doesn't come from God, there will be no word of God, if I can put it like that. We cannot produce or manufacture or manipulate that word and force God to speak, as it were. It's God's word, 
And only he can give it and get it out into circulation. Only God can do that. Turning out more graduates from the colleges won't necessarily change that. God's word is his gift to his people. And it says here in Shiloh that that gift was rarely given. But wonderfully, that was about to change at this point in the story. Last week, we had this unnamed man of God show up out of the blue with a word for Eli. Not a particularly nice word that God was going to judge his house. That was important in chapter 2 because when the word from God is rare, people get out of practice listening to God. And that message, which we looked at last week, authenticates the next message, the one we've got today. It, It corroborates it and authenticates it. It's a different human messenger, but the same message from the same source. God is speaking again. So that's what's going on in the chapter we have today. A bit of preliminary scene setting to start with. We learn that Eli is blind and elderly. Um, It looks like Samuel's sleeping quarters were right by the tabernacle, maybe uh, just next door to the inner sanctuary where the ark was. And then from verse 4, as I said, God was kind enough to speak. Verse 4a, then the Lord called Samuel. And it's not hard to see what's important in the narrative that follows because that word for calling, the Lord calling, comes I think 11 times in verses 4 to 10, Samuel answered, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I didn't call, go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again, the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. My son, Eli said, I didn't call, go back and lie down. Now Samuel didn't yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time, the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there calling as at the other times. Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. That sets up the oracle he receives when God does speak again. That's a memorable story, isn't it? Although if you're remembering the cutesy children's picture Bible versions, Samuel's probably not a toddler at this stage. He was old enough to understand that what God was saying uh, was, well, he understood it clearly enough to, to be worried about the content, which we'll look at in a moment, and to hesitate before passing it on to Eli. So that doesn't bespeak a a toddler that's only just learning to speak quite. There was nothing ambiguous about this call. Samuel wasn't going to look back in a few years' time when the going got tough and say, I wonder if God really did call me. I'm not sure about my vocation. So it wasn't just an inner feeling that he had. We might talk about vocations in that way. The word came in a real voice, speaking Hebrew, a real language. It was so real that Eli thought it must be Eli speaking. And he heard that voice and made the same mistake repeatedly. So you get three or four accounts of it, don't you, of 
just to, as I said, to corroborate the fact that God's speaking was happening. Notice, too, it was addressed by name to Samuel. It was clear it was intended for him. If we ask how he didn't know who it was speaking, the answer in verse 7 is Samuel didn't yet know the Lord. God's word had not yet been revealed to him. That point I was making about uh, not having previous experience of this. He had not had previous experience of revelation happening direct to a person from God in this way. So no wonder the call baffled him. He needed that Eli factor. And remember, he had had that visit from the man of God beforehand. So God already had Eli's attention. Well, so much for the nuts and bolts of what's happening there. The question in my mind is, what about us then? Is this a model for us? Well, let's not go straight ahead to assume that we are to look for a calling from God like this. We don't read the Old Testament in the flat as lots of little messages for me, lots of little messages for you, and this one's obviously telling us to be like Samuel, we'd think. We don't read the Bible like that. You and I come at a different point in God's timeline, and we are not Old Testament prophets like Samuel. God spoke to Samuel this way, but that doesn't mean we try and replicate the details of this storyline. I'm not going to put a camp bed in the vestry for clearer communication from God. That's not going to happen. God spoke to Balaam through a donkey, and nobody reasons from that story that everybody ought to keep a donkey in their gardens just in case, although we might love to have them, I guess. Maybe not, perhaps. I don't know. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers in many and various ways. But now, Hebrews 1 says, in the last days, he's spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. He has spoken, past tense. That final word, centered on Jesus Christ and his finished work, his death for our sins, gives us a revelation of God's truth, which is absolutely sufficient for us. It's here in scripture, isn't it? And it would be strange to sort of wind the clocks back and hope for the sort of experience that Samuel had. Not when we have all the riches and the knowledge of God which Jesus Christ has brought to us in the Bible. So I'm not contending that we have to have that sort of call experience like Samuel did and replicate the details necessarily. Nevertheless, that prayer, uh, which we've sung in that hymn, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening, that is a model prayer for us in many ways as we realize that it is a gift of God that he illumines his word to us. We have the sufficient word in Scripture. We need God to quicken us so that we're good listeners, don't we? And praying that way, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening, is a good thing to do when we read the Bible. You speak, God. I'm listening. And I'm listening with the sense that you're the boss and I am a subject bound to obey. I'm committing myself in advance in advance of knowing what you're going to say necessarily, to listen to every word and to follow it. It's a prayer. It's quite a risky prayer to pray, isn't it, in a way? It's a prayer which is offering God a blank check. I've signed to deliver on that. Whatever amount he should fill in, as it were, whatever content to what God's word says there is. Anyway, that was the prayer 
that uh, Samuel was encouraged to pray. That was the prayer he prayed. And it's wonderfully answered as God speaks. God speaks to Samuel. And then by the end of the chapter, he speaks through Samuel as well. So let's fast forward to the bit that David read, verse 19 uh, through to the end of the chapter. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan up in the north to Beersheba, down in the depths of the south, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word, and Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now, I said we aren't prophets like Samuel, but in fact we are all message bearers for God. And what you're witnessing in this chapter is one of the reversals that we thought about in Hannah's song, where the mighty are brought down, the humble are lifted up. The professional Eli is going to be brought down. And a young pup, Samuel, is given God's word for all Israel. And that pattern of reversals continues today. In the age of the Holy Spirit, all God's sons and daughters prophesy. We're able to hear from God ourselves. We're able to speak for him to others. No special calling required. You are a prophet as a Christian in that New Testament sense of the word. I was thinking that this is an apt message in one sense for these uh, curates, for Gideon, for Nick, for, for David Tisdall, for Ali Gledhill, all getting ordained this week, that they must be listeners and speakers for God and pray this sort of way. But can I encourage every one of us to pray this way? When you read the Bible, Lord, speak to me. Your servant's listening. That uh, Francis Ridley Havergal hymn we sung, she's got other ones like this. There's a lovely phrase I remembered. I just came to me as I was writing this down. Lord, speak to me that I may speak in living echoes of your tone. I can't remember that hymn even. I don't think it's the same one we sang. But anyway, it's a great prayer, isn't it? Speak to me so that I can speak in living echoes of your tone. For me, it's been such a help to, to read the Bible, and as I read the Bible on my own devotionally, try to get a best thought that I could share with somebody else. The staff tease me that I often say I've got a best thought for them. But it's been very helpful, rather than just reading the Bible and letting it sort of wash over me, actually to crystallize something I can have in portable form, at the end of a, a time of reading the Bible, so that I'm aware of what God's saying to me. And in the cash point queue or when I'm sort of killing time on hold uh, uh, with a, a, a sort of a, a phone um, message thing that's happening, whatever I'm doing where I've got downtime, I can call to mind God's word to myself or I can pop it on the bottom of an email that I'm sending to a friend. You sometimes wonder, why is God... Why has this sort of random verse appeared on an email from Simon? Well, that's probably why. It's been a very helpful discipline for me, and I wonder if it shouldn't be more widely encouraged amongst God's people today. Um, if it shouldn't be something we all should be doing, just to crystallize what God is saying to me for my sake and for others, other people's sake. I seem to be on a recruitment drive for All Saints kids at the moment. And you probably, most of us here, 
might feel that we're off the hook for All Saints Kids, and it would be practically difficult for a number of us to do. But we can carry this concern to pray it for the church as a whole. There is a recruitment need for All Saints Kids at the moment. 16 in the older group the other day is too big for them effectively to listen to God's word. Once you have 16 squirming bodies in a small space with echoey ceilings, I can tell you it's difficult for them to concentrate. And therefore, one group should be divided into two, which means double the number of leaders you need, isn't it? It's a fairly straightforward bit of math to do that. So I'm for recruiting more people to that team, even though I know I say it regularly. And I was saying to the 9.30 service, if, if you can't a couple of times a term look at a Bible passage and share something worthwhile from it, then raise the question, aren't we shortchanging our children in the church? Um, you see, you don't need to be a professional. You do need to be a prophet with the sense that I've received a word from God to pass on to others. And praying this way, Lord, I'm available. Please brief me. Please put me to work. Please speak to me and speak through me is, I think, a very fitting application from this passage. This passage says God is kind enough to speak. It's an activity of his grace that he does, something for us to thank him for on a Thanksgiving Sunday. The gift of God's word in a church is a sign of his grace to us. If we got a church where social activities and committee meetings and fundraising and the latest tech efforts are not sidelining the word of God, then that's a matter for thanks, is it not? If rather than just child-minding the kids, the kids' groups are teaching the Bible, then thank God for that. If the sermons are not just therapy sessions with a Christian veneer, but Bible communication, the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible, then that's a mark of God's grace again. Thank him for that today. That's my longest point. It's the weight of the, uh, the, uh, the, the chapter, it seems to me. God is kind enough to speak. I wanted to put it that way. Second point, God is merciful enough to save. In other words, there's not just a new day dawning in Revelation. God's purposes of salvation are moving on as well at this point in the storyline with the appointment of Samuel as a prophet. Dark days are going to give way to a bright new day. Within a few chapters, the Philistines, we had them drawing up for battle in chapter 4 verse 1, but they're going to be defeated and God will save his people through King Saul to begin with, and then decisively through great King David. So that saving work is getting advanced in this chapter as this little boy Samuel hears a word from God and gets put to work. But we should never presume on that saving work of God. Just look at the content of the message that Samuel received in verse 11. Just refresh your memories of that. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family. Message from the, uh, the man of God in chapter 2. From beginning to end, 
For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons uttered blasphemies against God, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down until morning. It doesn't say he got restful sleep. Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision, but Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, here I am. He's getting used to saying that now, isn't he? What was it he said to you, Eli asked. Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. And I don't really know what tone of voice Eli used when he said that last bit. But we certainly know how Samuel felt about that message. He was afraid to share that vision because his word carries a spine-tingling note of judgment. There's going to be bad news for someone he loves before there is any good news for Israel. Yet, he delivered the message. Incidentally, that little phrase in verse 18 is the mark of the true prophet. Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. But there is always this pattern in the Bible. The good news is good precisely because the bad news is where we start. The good news is good because the cloud of God's judgment has lifted. When a jeweler is trying to sell a diamond, they display it against a black velvet cloth often. And unless we see our dark situation as dark as it really is, we are never going to appreciate the brilliance of God's saving love. It's a terrible mistake. It's fatal even to believe that God is basically smiling on the world. Or indeed, to allow people to believe that God is smiling on them. I know, it's really hard to take in, isn't it? We're so hardwired to scoot over that particular message that the wrath of God is being revealed against human uh, ungodliness. But that is the true situation of our world today. That God loves people is, of course, true. But part of that love is that God is grieved by our wrong choices and grieved by the consequences that follow on from those wrong choices. We all turn away from God, and the result of that is that we place ourselves under God's judgment. God could go straight ahead to that judgment for every one of us. But mercifully, he doesn't. He takes action to save. In fact, it's more amazing than that. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he saved us by taking our judgment on himself. He loves us so much that he was prepared to take that judgment for us. God is merciful enough to save. But don't presume on that mercy saying, I'll be fine. We need to claim it for ourselves. The other day, um, we went to the Mattingly War Cemetery on Memorial Day. And uh, I went with Susu and the girls. We spent some time looking for Joe Kennedy's 
name on the wall there. Joe Kennedy Jr. was um, JFK's elder brother, the president, uh, who would, the one who would later be president. Joe Kennedy was slated for a bombing run in the Second World War on the 12th of August 1944. He was going to be flying a PB-24 Liberator, which was sort of the equivalent of a drone in those days. It was designed to be loaded with high explosives and then directed to its target via remote control after the pilot and co-pilot had bailed out. Well, before takeoff for that flight, an electronics officer warned Joe Kennedy that the remote control detonator was faulty and that anything like radiostatic or air turbulence could actually set off an explosion before the crew would have had time to get out. And so the officer urged Joe to call the mission off. You probably know the, the sequel. It's a tragic sequel. Kennedy ignored the warning and flew anyway, and the plane blew up at 6.20 in the evening in the sky over England, just very early on in the flight. Both Kennedy and his co-pilot were killed. It's a little example, a tragic example of the tendency we have not to heed warnings. He was told, he knew, but it made no difference. Now, I don't know why Eli didn't, even at this late stage, act on the warning and repent. But I do know that the warnings of judgment that God gives today are often ignored. And that is a tragedy when God is merciful enough to save. He's given his own son for us because he doesn't want anyone to face judgment. How crack as it would be to press on ignoring the warnings and how thankful we should be that he's done all he can to deliver us from judgment and to celebrate and thank God if you know that uh, salvation personally, on a warm summer Thanksgiving Sunday like today. Let's pray together. We want to thank you for that wonderful word we have in the Bible. And we pray, Heavenly Father, for your grace towards us to speak to us each day. Um, to bring your word home afresh to us and then even to speak through us uh, whatever opportunities there might be uh, to a world that needs to hear your voice. Begin that work in us. Speak to us, we pray. We thank you too, Lord, for the finished work of Christ, dying on the cross for our sins to Free us from judgment. We thank you for salvation in him this morning. And we don't presume on it. You are gracious, merciful, ever to save us from sin. And we thank you for that wonderful salvation. We thank you today just quietly for those who spoke of that salvation to us. For those who were courageous enough to warn of judgment and uh, for the wonder of the message we heard from them when we realized that Christ died for our sins. We bring our praise and thanks for them and for that wonderful work of Christ's today. In Jesus' name, amen.